Today's podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Surface Pro gives you the power you need when you're out and about. It has a super fast processor and an all-day battery life, so you can play up to 13.5 hours of video without needing to charge. It's light enough to take anywhere, and it works with your iPhone, so it's synced with your life. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. ever. We are also brought to you by TheRinger.com. What a great website. Our favorite website. Please read... EIC Sean Fennessy's How to Win Your Oscar Pool series, and our additional Annihilation content, including our exit survey, Adam Naaman's look at the disturbing vision in the film, and our various podcast features on the movie itself. I would call the exit survey deeply disturbing glimpse into the collective <laughs> ringer psyche, so enjoy as, that. As all glimpses into the collective <laughs> ringer psyche are. Too true. Also, guys, while you're at it, please go check out and subscribe to The Recapables on The Ringer Podcast Network. The Recapables team will be reviewing FX's hit show Atlanta all throughout its second season. It'll go up right after each episode airs on Thursday night. So if you like Atlanta, go subscribe and listen and also check out their season one recap. And on the video side, we're putting up Oscar preview videos in anticipation for this year's Academy Awards. Those are great. Yes. P.S. I watched those over the last few days. They're really fun. You can find those and other great video content like NBA Desktop, which is okay on the Ringer's YouTube channel on our Twitter page at Ringer. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Annihilation, the movie that we're going to be talking about today, contains a scene in which a strange doppelganger wrestles with Natalie Portman, which I found to be uh, quite charming. So if that disturbs you in any way, please check out GM Street. One more warning. Yes. Binge mode contains spoilers. (laughs) If you do not yet know what it's like to hear a mutant bear unleash the haunting cries of your fallen comrade when it roars, please proceed with caution. And now, binge mode. Can you describe its form? No. Was it carbon-based? I don't know. Did it communicate with you? It reacted to me. You really have no idea what it was. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. Oh, yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today... Now that he's finished giving the neighborhood alligator shark a dental examination. Look at those circular teeth. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Mal, it's not possible. It's not possible! (laughs) You can't crossbreed different species as far as I know. But before I question your science, some quick reminders. Every Thursday on Binge Mode Weekly, we'll be diving deep into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. And this spring... We'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter. 
You'll be able to find both Weekly and Harry Potter on the same feed, so stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. Five stars only. We have one more exciting announcement. We'll be at this spring's Con of Thrones in Dallas, Texas. More details to come, but we'd love to see y'all there. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Let us know how our tweets look once they've refracted inside the shimmer. And please join our new Facebook group. Yeah. It's lit inside the Facebook group, It's really lit. Which is just for binge mode fans, only binge mode fans. Search binge mode on Facebook and go to groups. You'll find us there. Pet photos, Harry Potter reading updates, anything that's on your mind, all that. Feel free to express it in the binge mode Facebook group. We would love to see you there. On today's Binge Mode Weekly. Yes. We're diving deep. Deep. Into our own tunnel. Into Annihilation. Alex Garland's sci-fi horror mindfuck. Based on the first book of Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy. Kind (laughs) of-ish. Very loosely based. (laughs) Again, requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, we will be going deep on details from the film and the book alike. That's right. So boot up your camcorders and check your guts. People still using camcorders. It's great. <laughs> because it's time to head to Area X Ooh. and step inside the shimmer. Jason? Yes. Can you describe its form? Yeah, no, but I can <laughs> offer up a very brief refresher on what we think, what we think happened in this movie by taking a quick trip toward the lighthouse on our very own King's Road. Again, what we think what happened. think happened. In the present day, Lena, in some kind of quarantine, tells a team of scientists about her journey, which we learn about in a series of flashbacks. Lena, Natalie Portman, a professor of cellular biology at Johns Hopkins, is mourning for her husband. A year ago, Kane, Oscar Isaac, a covert operative, was called away on a secret mission. Six months later, Lena gives him up for dead. She's been trying in fits and starts to move on from her husband. That includes moving on from the affair that she had before Kane left with a colleague, one day. Kane returns! Hey, what's up? <laughs> Just painting the bedroom. Just painting the bedroom. But some weird stuff is going on. Like, it turns out he's not Kane, but we'll get to that <laughs> later. <laughs> Spoiler, not Kane. He cannot remember really any details of the mission, and yeah. she is grilling him. He doesn't know how he got home, and he just seems generally off. Sure enough, he takes a sip of water, bleeds Gross. into the cup. Some gum says, issues. I don't feel well. Uh, Yeah. And is swept away. Black vans intercept Kane's ambulance on the highway. SWAT team emerges, grabs Kane, sedates Lena, and she awakes in a research facility in the Southern Reach, loosely based on Florida, which is based on our understanding of the book. There she's interrogated by Dr. Ventress, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Ventress explains that the facility she is in sits on the quarantine border of Area X, which encircles a strange environmental event known as the Shimmer. Kane was part of a military team tasked with penetrating the Shimmer to reach the lighthouse, the epicenter of the event. The team, like all other excursions into Area X, manned and unmanned, were never seen again. Kane is the first person to return. The next mission, led by Ventress, is scheduled to leave in a few days. Lena 
determined to discover what happened to her husband and also driven by her own scientific curiosity, attaches herself to this next mission. The rest of the group includes Tessa Thompson's Josie, a physicist, Tuva Novotny's Cass, a geologist, and Gina Rodriguez's Anya. She stole this movie in she a lot really of ways. Did. Truly tremendous. A paramedic. They are the first all-female crew to enter the Shimmer. Lena decides against telling the rest of the team, other than Ventress, who already knows, that the mysterious patient who's now in the infirmary, the lone survivor of the Shimmer, is in fact her husband. The team enters the Shimmer and things get freaking weird in a real hurry. quick. <laughs> real, real quick. They awaken at camp with absolutely no memory of how they got there, of setting up camp. They believe they've been in for just a short time, but a quick inventory of supplies reveals they've been in for multiple days. They cannot communicate with the outside world. And all around them, things are just strange. Foliage and creatures not seen anywhere on this earth. After a misadventure at a little shack boathouse that involves a gator shark hybrid. Gator with shark teeth? Normal stuff. An albino gator with shark teeth. The team makes camp at an abandoned military base. And there they discover that Kane's expedition had also used this space. How do they discover that? Well, their names are on board. And also, helpfully, there's a a video of them mutilating each other. (laughs) It's great stuff, guys. (laughs) The team discovers this this memory card, which has actually clearly been left as a warning. It's for those who come next. And the video that card holds shows Kane methodically slicing open another soldier's stomach so that they and we can see the man's intestines moving as though alive. They do look like like eels. (laughs) Deeper into this building, Lena's team finds in a mostly empty swimming pool the soldier's corpse morphed with the wall. It's part of this overgrown, strange plant and mold-like substance that happens to have, like, his limbs and skull sticking out of it. It's great stuff. And things only get weirder from there because that night, a mutant bear infiltrates their camp and kills Cass. Tough stuff. The team begins to splinter and fray as the effects of the shimmer begin to show on them. Anya notices the changes occurring on and under her very skin. And creeping she, uh, like her, palm she's looking at her skin. palm. It's moving as if things are alive in there. And she flips out, takes the rest of the team hostage. But luckily is killed by the mutant bear whose roar, by the way, is the sound of Cass screaming. Ventress journeys alone to the lighthouse. And Josie, after explaining to Lena that the shimmer is refracting everything inside of it, including the elements of life. It's refracting light. It's refracting sound. It's refracting all kinds of signals. It's refracting their DNA. And that's what's sparking these strange mutations. Josie turns into basically a walking rose bush and (laughs) wanders away to commune with nature. Lena, meanwhile, follows Ventress to the lighthouse where she discovers another tape. Helpful. A lot of tapes. Gotta leave those tapes. Showing her husband, Kane committing suicide using a phosphorus grenade. Willie Pete. Before he activates the grenade, though, he's talking to someone off camera yeah. who, it turns out, is Kane's doppelganger, the one who went home to Lena. So that's a lot to process. And in her attempt to process this, Lena ventures into a tunnel. Book readers, here's yeah, your tunnel slash tower-ish. No words on the wall. Kind of. 
but or no, and then no crawler. No but crawler. It's definitely a tunnel-like thing that she climbs into, yes. so that'll have to be enough. It is under the lighthouse in this case, the center of the event. Guess we should mention that the film opens with a meteor-like thing hitting the lighthouse. There, Lena finds Ventress in the midst of a deeply strange transformation, literally shouting the movie's title. Annihilation! (laughs) Destruction! (laughs) Can we get that in the bear voice? (laughs) Really one of the best uh, characters says the title of the movie. Special. In the movie In film history, I think. It's an incredible moment. And as she is shouting the movie's title, (laughs) she morphs out of her human state. Right. And we will discuss whatever that is in a second. An alien figure then emerges from a shape in that underground space and begins to mirror Lena's movements. They struggle. The figure begins to transform into Lena, but Lena defeats it by handing it a phosphorus grenade, pulling the pin, and fleeing the lighthouse. The lighthouse is destroyed and the fire catches across the root light network, causing the shimmer to burn, shrink, and eventually disappear. Back in the present day, Lena completes her quarantine debrief. She is reunited sort of, something? with doppelganger Kane. And she asks Kane if he's really Kane. He says, I don't think so, right. actually. And then asks if she's Lena. And they embrace, and the film ends on this embrace as their irises shimmer with this strange alien-like color. A deliberately ambiguous note for the film to end on. We will talk more later about what we think actually happened. She, we suppose, told them that that is not her husband, right? So why are they, like, letting him do stuff? We'll get to that later. Good question. I like this movie, by the way. Mal, (laughs) it's destroying everything. It's not destroying it's making something ah. new. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end of those bear claws and gator shark teeth. The defining theme of Annihilation is self-destruction. And we know this because, helpfully, the director of the film told us so. On Sean Fennessy's The Big Picture podcast, which you guys should definitely listen to if you haven't, Yet, Annihilation writer and director Alex Garland identified self-destruction as the central preoccupation of his film. Say it. Always the films I work on have got some obsession or another that gets jammed into it. And particularly in the case of Annihilation, it was really about self-destruction. It was about the ways in which people are self-destructive, the hidden ways and the obvious ways, and why it is that all of us are in some way self-destructive. Okay, motivation, identity, choice— What drives us? What is the effect of the uncanny? Those themes, those questions connect Annihilation the book and Annihilation the movie. But Garland's film leans hard into how those threads weave together into this driving question of self-destructive tendencies. What causes them? What is the impact of them? It is very important to note here that Garland never, clearly never set out to make a note-for-note adaptation of Jeff Vandermeer's book. Again, on the big picture, Garland said, I said to Jeff, I don't know how to do a faithful adaptation of your book. I just literally don't know how to do it. And if what you need is a faithful adaptation, then you will need someone else because I'm not the guy who's going to be able to do that. And it definitely shows because the final products are almost 
dizzying in their differences, and yet they remain linked in their desires to explore certain aspects of human nature and how those aspects of human nature really surface in stark relief when they are confronted with mother nature. Yes. So before we get deeper into exploring those themes and how Garland uses self-destruction as a central idea and also how the movie and book differ, question, did you like this movie and how did your experience of consuming it differ or enhance from your experience with the book? Trying to square the book with the film is extremely disorienting. I think we both agree on that, which in a way enhances the really experience of the movie because the movie is very purposefully wildly disorienting. Wildly. I mean, when they walk into the shimmer, Garland uses all sorts of effects to throw you off from where you think you are. The edges of the frame will be blurred out. Certain things will be brilliantly colored. Other things will seem as if they're receding to the distance. It's almost this dreamlike quality where you're not sure what you're looking at. The characters aren't sure what they're looking at. It creates this kind of like unreliable narrator feel, which generates this feeling of disorientation throughout the movie. There's this moment that I noticed that I'm not sure it was intentional or what, but when Cass is killed by the bear, right? Oh, help me. <laughs> so Lena and Ventress are down underneath this watchtower, basically on guard duty, looking for what's going on. They hear a crash and a roar and realize that something has penetrated the perimeter. Amazing of the base. choice, by the way, to choose to camp, to sleep in the high ground. Right. Smart. And then go down. The first time you hear a scary sound, everyone go down yeah. to Why ground don't we stay level up there? where guys, the thing can get you. Guys, let's stay up there. <laughs> Let's stay up on the high thing where you can see everything. And maybe shoot it. No need to go down. So weird. Sorry, you were saying. <laughs> so Cass comes down and is killed by the bear. Now, up in the watchtower, Anya and Josie are awakened by this sound. And when they wake up, you see them in the watchtower. And outside the windows, it's light. It almost like dawn light. Is that the moon? Do those things happen at different times? And then later on, when Anya takes them hostage, she's like, I didn't see a bear. Right. We didn't see a bear. You guys say you saw a bear, but we didn't see it. So what is going on? It creates this whole thing of like, is everybody seeing the same thing? Are things happening at exactly the same time? We're just not sure. And right. trying to figure out what's going on in this movie is, I think, part of the experience of watching this movie. All great points. The question of are we all seeing the same thing? Can we trust what we're seeing? Can we trust yeah. what the people next to us are seeing? Is, I think, much heavier question and propelling force in the book than it is in the movie. Yes. I almost, like, can't properly convey how disorienting my experience with this story was <laughs> because— so you had read the book. Yes. You told me I would like the book and that I should read it before the movie came out, so I had decided and really, to and do And it's so. super short. It's short. I, as is so often the case in life— yeah. Good intentions ran out of time. And so it's two days before I intend to see the movie because, you know, I know we're thinking about doing the pod. I want to participate in the, you know, this cultural conversation of the moment. I had told my husband this. He read it in, I think, three and a half hours. Texted yeah. me. He was like, this is a breach. You can get through it. No yeah. problem. I guess I'm a much slower reader than my <laughs> husband because <laughs> I started reading it last Friday night. Got a couple pages in. Saturday, I'm intending to see the movie in the afternoon. I make the classic rookie mistake of, you know, in L.A., you reserve your seat. So I have sure. purchased my tickets. I'm on the clock. 
I'm reading this book. It's very clear to me I'm not going to finish. So first of all, I did not finish the book before the movie started. Second of all, it didn't matter because the plots are so different. They basically have zero similarities. The overall framework and the overall questions of the stories are the same. The specifics are almost all different. So it didn't matter, but it made what would already have been a disorienting movie-going experience all the more discombobulating because the book was so fresh in my head that I spent almost every second of the movie comparing it to what I had just read. And then I went home after watching the movie and, well, first I went to get duck fried rice and then I went home, delicious, and finished the book. And I was like, what the- Did you order on caviar? Fuck just happened. No, I actually went to a restaurant like a person with Dave. (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep his nickname private. But so I think- Every individual person's specific experience will differ. I think the general takeaway is similar for most people, which is like, what did I just see? So let's talk a bit more about the story at large, how in the big picture sense the movie and the book were crafted. And I want to begin with something you mentioned a minute ago, which is like that dreamlike nature of the story because a dream inspired the novel. Vandermeer spoke about this on The Watch. He's spoken about this in other interviews. Garland has said that he wanted the film to feel like a dream. I think it certainly does. It really does. And one of the things that I think is interesting is how the way the movie and book relate to each other kind of feels like when you as a person are trying to recount a dream in real life. You know, you wake up and you have this, this sense of something that you can't shake. Garland's film is sort of a representation of the novel more than a faithful adaptation. Just like if you're trying to talk about a dream, you're able to paint with broad yeah. strokes, but you can't actually, or you choose not to or something, but you're not capturing all of those specifics. Yeah, the movie and the book are described as atmospheric. Yes, by I their guess, creators. Right, and I and I suppose like what specifically is that atmosphere? It's a feeling of unease. It's a feeling of being subsumed by... Something else. I think something that really struck me about this movie and the book as well is that there is something scary, kind of fundamentally, existentially frightening about nature unbound. You know, like we decry the destruction of the environment all the time. It's terrible to to think about like what this planet will look like in 50 years. At the same time, imagining an objectively healthy planet without us is terrifying, which is kind of what our characters see when they venture into the shimmer. They see just nature unleashed in really beautiful ways, but in ways that don't involve humans at all. And Garland's description of the film to Sean is, quote, this weird metaphysical hallucinogenic atmosphere piece. And that is exactly what it's like. It's almost like as you struggle to find purchase in this movie on either, you know, what is happening, what is this character's point of view, what is this detail that I'm seeing, just like in a dream, The harder you concentrate on that thing, the farther it seems to recede from you. Right. It's another one of the notable differences between film and book because, like, what you're saying about the environment and thinking about nature and the earth reclaiming itself. You know, in the book, through the first book at least, like, really opaque. People know about the event, actually, which is another difference, but you're not really clear on what has happened or why. And... In the movie, we're going to talk more about the ending later, but it does kind of boil down a little more neatly into, like, this is alien. And that is really different. You know, the idea of something extraterrestrial coming in to claim what's ours versus the idea of the Earth reclaiming itself. And I think 
as a reader, you're allowed a little more freedom to maybe try to figure out if that's what's happening right. than you are in the film where, you know, by the nature of the visuals and the need to build kind of clear narrative tension and drama, there's a little bit more of a finer point on it. I think maybe too fine a point on it, especially given that one of the intentions of the ending they ultimately went with, which was not the original right. ending, is, hey, you're kind of like, it's up to you to figure out what you think is going on here. And that idea of figuring out what is going on here is really central to this story in general. When he was on The Watch, Jeff Vandermeer said, this really stood out to us, we don't really get lost that much anymore. And right. this is just a commentary on modern day life. Right. And when he said this, it was as a like sincere lament. And he spoke yeah. a lot with Chris and Andy about how he likes to get out and commune with nature, take these hikes, look around him, see these dolphins. There's a, do a prominent dolphin in yeah, the book. Yes. Think about the earth and try to come across things that basically still have the capacity to surprise him. And, you know, in many ways, his story, the story that he wrote, is a testament to the pull that nature can and maybe even should still hold over man. And especially in the digital age when anything you want to know, any information that you seek, it's a click away. You know, boot up your computer, put a search into your iPhone. You can find anything. But what if you were in a realm where you really didn't know? What if you were presented with something truly alien and not necessarily literally alien as yeah. in not of the earth, but alien as in not familiar to you, not the things that you expect to come across? You know, what if you really could get lost? I think that's a fascinating idea of, you know, we think about like the modern world with all this information in our fingertips as being, among many things, kind of free. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk to anybody. Any information that you need is at your fingertips. You know, I was in a car with my mom and her friends this summer, and they were having an argument about, like, was this person in this movie for, like, 20 minutes? Right. And I was like, guys, just look, look it up. Look at IMDb. Just look it yeah. up. Why are you doing this? Stop right. this. At the same time, what Garland and what Vandermeer presupposes, that that kind of infinite access to knowledge is also constricted in a way. Mm -hmm. It's cutting us off from something that is kind of truly strange and magical and even like dangerous. Right. Like modern life is about removing uncertainty in yeah. many ways. And it is extremely compelling when this story leans into the idea of how those uncertainties are actually kind of the point. Yeah. There's a black mirror element to that too. You know, sure. what are we losing because of all these things that we've gained. And specifically with the characters in this story, this idea of not really getting lost anymore, that's a big part of why these people volunteer to right. go into Area X in the story. You know, it, again, there's a difference there in the book. The number of expeditions, well, the number of public expeditions, more are revealed later, but there are these known public expeditions. This isn't like a total... Mystery, right. you know, none of the specifics are known. But like, if you're a person in the world, you know, you understand what's reach. going you know on. Yeah. That there's this thing there. You know that these groups of people have volunteered to go in, and that they haven't come back until Kane's expedition and his entire expedition comes back, and then they all die of cancer. So that is very different as well. In the movie, the motivations are very different, yeah. but ultimately. These people are choosing. They are opting into this experience. And Lena, known in the book as the biologist, she grew up as a person who was more interested in the burgeoning ecology of her childhood swimming pool where all of this wildlife mm. and plant life was 
coming into existence before her eyes. An entire ecosystem was forming. She didn't want to go hang out with friends. She didn't want to socialize. She wanted to watch that happen and to figure out what those mysteries and oddities were actually all about. And one of the things that Vandermeer said on The Watch was breaking away from everything you know is kind of exhilarating. And he was speaking as much to the process of what he was trying to do in this book as to his own tendencies to just go for a really long walk. And then just in terms of the nature of exploration, which again is really core to to both of these stories, there's this line in the book that we both really, 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 really love. The map had been the first form of misdirection for what was a map but a way of emphasizing some things and making other things invisible. It's a really important insight, actually. Yes. Just in life. I totally agree. And it's a great literary technique where he's talking about something very specific. You know, why are these maps of the the members of the Southern Reach, this kind of like hazy government body that we don't learn much about in the first book, giving these people as they enter into the expedition these maps and saying, the lighthouse, here it is, this is what you want. And yet right when they wake up at their initial camp, they're right by this tunnel tower thing, which is clearly where interesting things are happening and something that they have to explore. It's not on the map. Why? Well, when you boot up Google Maps on your phone today, you're only ever going to be able to discover what someone is telling you to discover, what someone has decided is worth your time. Does that person have a point of view? And what is that point of view? These are important questions as information is increasingly centralized in a publicly accessible way. Right. Is it oversight? Is it intentional misdirection? Either way, you're suffering. Right. Fascinating things to consider. Yeah. And these questions for the characters understandably, start to quickly fuck with their heads a little bit. And one of the things that the biologist says in the book is that's how the madness of the world tries to colonize you from the outside in, forcing you to live in its reality. I didn't realize until now how much this book and movie feels like it was written by Kyrie Irving's subconscious. (laughs) (laughs) Is the shimmer flat or round? Listen, Listen, I'm just asking that people look at it for themselves and just discover it for themselves. Just do, do, your, do own research. do your own research. Go into the, uh, Area X and the Shimmer on your own and figure it out. <laughs> Turn into a, a walking bush with eels for intestines and figure it out for yourself. Bring your camcorder, though. You have to. For the Illuminati. Yeah, we got to see what's going on. <laughs> All right. What about the characters' identities? What about their motivations? Let's talk about how in the book, yeah. they do not have names. Yes. They are simply their genders and their job titles. That's it. So on the one hand, do they really have identities? They're more like archetypes that with character detail and personality kind of filtered in through action and through the recollections of one of the characters. On the other hand, like what are we if not the things that we spend our time doing. Right. That's depressing, but also like a very fair question to ask. Now, this brings up the issue of whitewashing. In Authority, the second book of the Southern Reach trilogy, Lena, referred to as a biologist, and Ventress, the psychologist, are described respectively as being of Asian and Native American heritage. Now, writer-director Alex Garland released a statement that, quote, the characters in the novel I read and adapted were not given names or ethnicities. He further explained in various interviews that he wrote the script before books two and three of the trilogy were released, where Vandermeer describes those characters. Fine. And also that he read a galley copy of the first book once. Fine. And then wrote his script. Fine, 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 <laughs> fine, fine, fine. But the, movie, the movie's good. We like the movie. I like Alex Garland's work. That said, there are various plot points, such as alien doppelgangers, 
Ventress dying of cancer, Ventress in general, a meteor strike being the genesis of the Shimmer, mm -hmm. which come from the books that Garland ostensibly did not read. Right. Author Jeff Vandermeer was also, in one way or another, in communication with Garland, involved in the adaption process in some way, was photographed on the set. I guess we're to presume that he was just like never like, oh, that's not how I envision these characters, but whatever. The explanation for the whitewashing is the more you dig into it, really as strange as the story itself. And there's a lot of kind of discordant character work that Garland uses to create the feeling of discomfort in this movie. He talks about on the big picture, and I'm paraphrasing now, but he talks about how from the outside, people seem as if they have their lives together. They're very organized. You know, they're like do their jobs. Et cetera, et cetera. But the more you kind of drill down and, and, and really examine a person, you find all these little fissures and weird things right. where they do things that undercut their stated goals or work against themselves in strange ways, these little micro-universes of contradictions. And that's what Garland is going for with his characters and their identities. Lena attaches herself, for instance, to the mission because of, of what happened to Kane. At the same time, she was growing apart from this guy. Yeah, I want to delve into this for a moment sure. because this is not even necessarily the specifics of mm -hmm. the infidelity of the affair, but the general nature of their relationship is so vastly different in yeah. the film and the book that the fact that it is in some ways like in both vehicles, the inciting incident for her involvement in this mission is yeah. a little hard to like wrap my head around. You know, in the movie, she is mostly driven by her guilt and her right. shame because, in essence, this is an oversimplified, boiled-down version, but in essence, she's viewing it this way. I cheated on him. Right. He found out. He threw himself into this death mission from which there was no return. And it's my fault. I'm a scientist. I have a military background. I can go in and fix this. Right. At a minimum, I can learn more to try to understand. Okay. In the book, she is almost disinterested in him. Yeah. Like, she is an extremely solitary character by nature. Yes. And we also learn that he goes in in the book, really, again, attempting to boil any character motivation in these stories down to, like, one sentence is sort of missing the point. Yeah. But he's trying to do something that he thinks will bring her closer to him, you know, to go into this ecological unreality almost, this thing that nobody else has experienced. You know, a lot of his journal entries are, you would love it here. Yeah. I would love to see you here. And it's just so different that I found it, especially because of the, you know, proximity of reading the book and seeing the movie, I found it like really jarring. And I totally get logically the reality of needing a major motion picture to carry that narrative punch of there was infidelity. Right. They love each other. But you just don't feel that. And yeah. so when you're changing something so fundamental about who that person is supposed to be, and the theme of the story is supposed to be that character's self-destructive tendencies, that's like a tough hurdle for me to cross because her self-destructive tendencies as a person would be different. Yeah. Would be totally different based on those other factors in her life. All the other team members in the movie have their own reasons for entering the shimmer, all of which boil down to some kind of self-destructive tendency that is driving them forward. Ventress enters the shimmer because she's terminally ill. Yes. Perhaps also guilt-ridden because she sent countless people to their doom in the shimmer who have never returned. Josie cuts herself, we learn. 
Cass lost a daughter. Anya is a recovery addict. We're damaged goods, Cass tells Lena. This is nice a, of them to spell it out that way. Right. Also. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, guys. It's an interesting idea that the thing that is on the one hand destroying you from the inside is also the thing that is driving you forward to discover new vistas and new things. And that also, that journey of discovery is fundamentally rearranging you in a way that is, destroy almost seems too simplistic a word. I guess Annihilation is obviously the title of the film, but it's right. re- it's like almost like a, a reformatting of your substance. So, okay, that's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. Is that how you processed it, that the, that these characters were seeking a fix or that they had given up and that they felt like they had nothing to lose? Because those are not that they're mutually exclusive. Right. I think saying they're mutually exclusive would be denying some fundamental truth about the complicated nature of being a person in the world. But I think that as driving forces, as pushing, like this is the thing that's motivating you, they are diametrically opposed. So which of them do you think it is or do you think it's like intentionally I think unclear? It's some, I think it's somewhat intentionally unclear at the same time. And also it doesn't have to be the same for all of them. Right. Of at, at the same time, Lena meets them after her husband comes back. She's been at Area X now for a while. She sees them having beers over there. They introduce themselves to her. They've been there for a while. They've seen people go in. They know that nobody except this guy has come out. Right. Drones have gone in, not come out. Everything they throw in has not come out. And yet, these people who are, by the way, not in the military, theoretically not under some kind of governmental order or oath to actually enter this space. One of them's a paramedic from Chicago. You know what I mean? Are like, yeah, I'll go in. Right. Well, so, okay, why would anyone do that? Yeah. Why would anyone go into the shimmer and what are these people trying to conquer? In many ways, that is the fundamental question of the film. Right. In a way, it's, it harkens back to, you know, the classic age of exploration when somebody would just be like, what is over the horizon? Literally no one knows. Right. Let's build a ship or let's walk over there and find out maybe if right. we live. But what if you knew something? So what if right. you knew that the people who went in didn't come out and you still chose to go in? That is really a thing that to me speaks to that feeling that these people have that is both self-destructive and propelling. Right. You know, they need to move forward because they're moving away from some kind of pain that if they stand still will eventually consume them. Consume them. Right. The shimmer isn't the only thing that, ha- yes. that risks consuming them whole. Right. There's a moment earlier in the film before Lena finds herself in Area X when Kane has returned yeah. and she's grilling him and he can't provide any specifics. And she says, I deserve a better explanation than no explanation. Right. And his response is, does it matter? And that is not a throwaway line. That is a purposeful bit of meta-commentary meant for conversations like this, for moments like this, when we are assessing the character's motivations. Do the specifics matter, or is the only thing that matters that it happened? Right. And Ventress says, the boundary is getting bigger. It's expanding. So there is that one element of this thing being positioned, the shimmer being positioned as an obvious threat, you know, a threat to mankind, a threat to our safety. It's contained enough that they've been allowing themselves to shirk off the responsibility of thinking about the inevitable conclusion of this, of what this creep means. And so you could interpret it that way, which is these people feel some sort of obligation to help. I think that's where we get into the difference between something we would label as sacrifice right. and something we have to label as self-destruction. It's hard 
to call something sacrifice if you don't fully understand what the characters, what the people think they are achieving and who they think they're protecting through the course of their actions. And it's a little bit too neat and tidy to say, well, you know, they're here because they want to they right. save the country. And I don't think at any point Garland actually wants us to think that. He right. clearly wants us to focus more on their psychology. Same with Vandermeer. It's not an accident that one of the main characters in this film is a psychologist. And... Not to just constantly be like, in the book. Yeah. <laughs> but it's notable that in the book, hypnosis plays a huge role. You know, mm -hmm. that is the psychologist's primary function or one of her primary functions. She has these trigger words. They all go through hypnosis as part of their prep back at the base before they even cross the boundary, what the film calls the shimmer. And the biologist, when she is infected by these spores down in the tunnel tower— and she starts to become changed, to alter, to mutate. And what is, you know, mutation, if not a form of self-destruction? She becomes immune to the hypnosis and starts to be able to perceive fully and clearly how hypnosis is being used as a, a vessel of control. This is completely absent from the film, which is a strange choice, I think, yeah. given how central hypnosis is to the book. But the effect is ultimately, I think, more in line with what Garland is trying to explore, which is what your choices say about you and why you act in the way you do. And it's hard to assess free will as a road to self-destruction if the characters don't actually have free will. And so in that sense, I think removing the hypnosis was smart because it allowed him to explore those ideas more freely. At one point, Anya gives her theories about what happened to the various missions that went into the Shimmer. Either they were killed by something. Turns out this place is absolutely lousy with mutant bears and shark gators. Or they went nuts or they kill each other, Anya says. They went crazy or something in here killed them. I think killed them is really interesting because, like, I keep coming back to this idea of annihilation. It's simultaneously more than death and less than death. Like, when they cut open the soldier's stomach, right, mm -hmm. he... I guess we would imagine dies, but actually he kind of like morphs into a plant. Same thing that happens to the people that either turn into plants or the plants that grow in the shape of people. There's this idea of life being your body, but in this movie, it's life is your identity as you. These people don't really die. They're subsumed by something else. They become part of like a larger natural structure. And that is really a terrifying thing to think think about. It's one of the best ways to think about Lena's character yes. because she is basically just less afraid of what yes. she's seeing than the other members of her team. Why? Is it because she is like a inherently fearless person or ex -military. is it ex-military, right? Or is it because of these self-destructive tendencies. You know, there's the scene, one of their first encounters with a horrifying mutated creature, and there are many, is with the albino gator shark at the flooded shack. And everyone else is trying to escape. Everyone else is moving physically backward. You know, their terror and their fear is given physical form. Mm -hmm. And she takes a knee, breaks out her rifle, and fucking 
lets loose just a barrage of bullets. And if the gator had kept moving toward her, you as a viewer are supposed to believe that she would have stood her ground because she's not afraid to die. And she's not afraid of whatever might happen to her, just as she's not afraid to go looking for Cass's body after the bear had taken her away, you know, and she says, I'll go alone. When the mutant bear comes to sniff at them. It's it's roaring with Cass's voice after it's killed her. And Anya has Ventress and Lena and Josie taped to chairs, tied to chairs. Lena is the only one who can find the composure to even yeah. say, sit still, don't move. I'm reminded of one of our favorite characters, Johnny Snow. I was going to say this reminds me of your John Wants to Die. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's really, it's really a, a commentary on how Things like fear and bravery are really matters of perspective. You know, like my theory on Jon Snow, Battle of the Bastards. So Jon Snow is resurrected, spoiler, after being stabbed by his own men. He comes back and he's extremely— Imagine someone listening to this podcast complaining about a Game of Thrones spoiler. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) And is extremely troubled by the experience. You know, he doesn't understand why he's there, doesn't know what he's supposed to do, has no idea what this means. And later on, he fights the Battle of the Bastards, right? Goes— way ahead of his men, charges thousands of men alone with just his sword, tries to face down the entire Bolton cavalry on his own. Is that brave? Sure. Is it stupid? Yeah. Like on one level, it's all stupid, but it's, I think, a function of the fact that he doesn't really want to live. He's trying to find ways to die and he keeps on living and people see that, see that kind of like wild self-destructiveness and they interpret it as bravery. Two things. One, presented differently on the show that we hear it from Rob in the book, yeah. it's a brand chapter. Right. And the exchange between Bran and Ed is, I think, in arguably one of the cornerstones on which the entire series is built. Bran saying, can a man still be brave if he's right. afraid? And Ned saying, that is the only time a man can be brave. Exactly. What a powerful idea. With John in particular, We have to view that complex brew of emotions and motivations through the lens of the burden of the hero, the burden of the one who's supposed to save them all. Is that present here? Can you convince yourself that that's present here? I'm not sure I can. You know, I think there is a world for this story where you could find yourself there, where we know enough about what the Southern Reach is, what this government organization is, who these characters are, why they're behaving this way, what this shimmer is, what the boundary is, how quickly it's moving, what it's actually going to do to this world, where we could say the people who are going in are doing it because they feel a compulsion to try to save us. It's not presented that way. And that's okay. You know, I think there's something valid and really beautiful about exploring questions like this at an individual level instead of through this grand sweeping question of what about the fate of humanity? But that's there. That element is there. We're just never led to believe that it's the cause of anything. And so that becomes complicated. It becomes harder to parse those questions of fear and bravery and how they relate to each other. The idea of motivation in itself is extremely complex. Why does anybody do anything? We think we know why we do things. But the more you think about the things that you do, the ways you react instinctively to certain stimuli, whatever— can be really fraught and reveal weird things about you. Right. So like when Josie says, you're saying we get out by going deeper in? Right. And Lena says, yeah, if you like. And Anya says, like? I don't like. And they are all thinking about what's happening so differently. Yeah. And also, it should be noted, Lena says in her debrief after that basically she lied to them. 
she's not being 100% truthful about this. She has a reason to press on that is not exactly that's the easiest way to get out. Right. And quickly, this why did Lena go into the tunnel chatter? Because after she goes into the lighthouse, sees this charred body against the wall, watches the tape, figured yeah. out what actually happened to Kane and the fact that he has this doppelganger. She sees this cavern and she climbs right in. And a lot of people are like, why would she do that? Of I all the things that occurred to me, that never occurred to me. A hundred percent agree. You've come that far. Of course. You your, went in in the first your place. Your body is already mutating. Yes. You're not going to go 10 feet farther and find out? I agree. Of I, I'm, I'm a little are. confounded by that line yeah. of discussion. Just because, again, there are a lot of yes. a lot of head scratchers in the movie, but that never felt like one of them. That felt very true to the character. Yeah. She went in in the first place to get to that point, right. to get to that moment, to yes. try to figure it out. The word annihilation, because when she walks into the tunnel again, she sees Ventress transform, shout the movie's title. The word annihilation in the book, the biologist comes to learn through reading the psychologist's journal, is a hypnotic trigger. It is a failsafe that is in place to get the members of the mission to commit suicide if things start going awry. Very different in the movie where the term is presented more as the reality of what is happening around them, what this external threat means. And it's that difference, I think, allows us to explore the questions of internal versus external threats, of other things being weapons wielded against you or of you or somebody else allowing you to become a weapon used against yourself. So the figure emerges from the shape. It turns out to it be— It sucks a little drop of Lena's blood right, into and then it. it and, and then, then it, it transmutes that and becomes her and— it mirrors her exactly. Every move that Lena makes, the doppelganger makes. To get out alive, Lena has to actually destroy this thing which contains some part of herself and is actually, we presume, confused about whether it is Lena or not. It's not sure what it is. And this sequence is wildly, wildly disorienting. Really just like incredibly hallucinogenic in many ways. It's the message of the movie in miniature. Right. What are we to our... We supposedly know ourselves better than anyone could possibly know us, right? Know our own motivations, know why we do things, the lies we tell, why we do them, why we tell the truth, when. But in the end, like, how much do we really know ourselves and what is more alien than ourselves and our own intentions as we go through life every day? How much do you really examine the things you do and why you do them? That is a weird and mildly terrifying thought. Yeah, I mean, the idea of this projection of herself being the last barrier between herself and her goal is... Right. Obviously, the theme incarnate, the theme boiled down in micro. And Garland wants us to understand and to be thinking about the fact that everything breaks down. You know, our bodies, yeah. our minds, our force of will, societies, planets. Self-destruction isn't just a theme for him. It is very literal. You know, cells break down. Our bodies... And this is something that the film addresses when Lena is talking to her students about how they're going to study cancer cells that semester. Our bodies rebel against us from the right. moment that we're born. There's this psychological form of self-destruction that comes later in your life. Right. But the biological one, that is ever present. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of destruction being a matter of perspective, too. You know, like these cells, these viruses that are attacking you are just part of a natural order that are built to do a thing. I'm reminded of this quote attributed to a Celtic chieftain during the Roman times, who talks about how uh, Rome comes in and just demolishes everything, destroys everything. And he said, they plunder, they slaughter, and they steal. They falsely name this empire. They make a wasteland and they call it peace. 
it's occasionally translated as they make a desert and they call it peace. They make a wilderness and they call it peace. And I think that's really a haunting thought. Like the thing that to you is building is to something else, to someone else, to another's perspective, destroying a culture or natural landscape or a way of life. And now a brief break for a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you. Whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. Try books like, oh, I don't know, Game of Thrones by George R.R. R. Martin, which is actually voiced wonderfully by Roy Dotrice. I highly recommend that one or any of the Harry Potter books. Or yeah, guys, Dune. prep for the pod. Listen prep to HP. The They've got all sorts of versions of the Harry Potter books available. Mm. We've got the Jim Dale narrated ones, the Stephen Fry narrated ones. There are German, French, Italian versions. We know a lot of our binge mode listeners are international. So, guys, check out Harry Potter on Audible. Whether it's on your phone. Yes. Through your car. Yes. From a tablet. Oh! We're at home on an Amazon Echo. Echo! Whoa, 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 whoa. You can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices. Picking up exactly where you left off. Where my WhisperSync fans at? That's handy. I like that. Start a 30-day trial. (laughs) And your first audiobook is free. Ooh, go to audible.com slash binge. Or text BINGE to 500-500-500-500. That's audible.com slash BINGE or text BINGE to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and a free first audiobook. You can do it with audiobooks. We are also brought to you by Microsoft Surface. When looking for a laptop, why not consider one with a powerful processor? The new Surface Pro is built for speed and has a battery that lasts all day. So you can play up to 13.5 hours of video without needing a charge. Say hello to getting more done and having a great time doing it. The Surface Pro is light enough to go anywhere you want with options for a removable keyboard in lots of new colors. Love that. It's touchscreen display response to your fingertips Great resolution, too. And it also works with your iPhone. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. ever. And now, back to binge mode. Jason? Yeah! Did it communicate with you? It reacted to me. You really have no idea what it was? The Shimmer, like the movie in which it appears, may defy easy classification, but... While we may not know what it is, we know how it makes us feel. And that is in large part because of the way this movie looks and sounds. In particular, the musical cue that debuted in the trailer and stitched this film together as much as really any narrative through line has become instantly iconic. Before you were a maester. That's right. You were a maestro. Ooh, this is incredible (laughs) stuff by Valerie Thank you. Thank you. So... (laughs) Please assemble the conclave and head to the tunnel in the Citadel to teach us everything we need to know about the spine-tingling sound design in Annihilation. The Alien. The musical theme created by Annihilation's co-composers Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow is but four notes in B-flat minor, beginning on the minor sixth, G-flat, resolving eventually to the tonic of B-flat. What does that mean? I'll explain in a second. Salisbury, in an interview with Slate, said of the theme, 
it comes from the most impactful bit of the score, the part where you're supposed to notice what's going on musically and be affected by it. And it's nice to hear even from people who don't like it, who are disturbed by it, because that is its purpose. Ah, so how does this very short motif of just four notes, really, I think five, I hear a grace note in there, and I think Isaac Lee agrees with me that there's kind of like a grace note at the tail end of the motif. How does it generate that feeling? I always think of music composition as a synthesis between math and language. It is a form of communication that's heavily math-based, but it's also extremely instinctual. And these intervals and the way they relate to each other, the way you stack them together, generates feelings, moods, emotions that you don't even realize that it's doing. So four notes, that doesn't seem like a lot, but a scale of music, a major scale, classical major scale, contains just seven notes. And that's chosen from only 12 notes, which make up the total of Western musical building blocks. That's fun to think about. DNA, which makes up you and me and everything that we see, the variety of life, is only four nucleotides, right? CGAT. The whole of English literature is expressed by just 26 letters, and 12 notes makes up all the music, basically, that you will ever hear. So it begins on a, on a minor sixth, which is a half step away from the fifth note in the scale. The one and the five are extremely important notes in a scale because they are stable. When you land on the one, think about it like this. It's like language, which we process linearly. We understand by where a word appears in a statement or a sentence that it is the subject of the sentence, right? So think of the tonic, the root, if you will, as the subject of a scale. When you land on that thing, you know that this is the note that this entire scale is about. The fifth is kind of like that. Think about it as like the verb. It's the thing that tells you what the tonic is doing. It is also very stable. You can land there. You know, Johnny runs, right? You don't know the details, but you know everything you need to know. The sixth is interesting. It's a half step above the fifth so that it feels this natural tension to resolve down to the fifth. So you hear that note first and you're immediately kind of disoriented because you're not sure what it relates to. Of course, there's like an underlying chord structure and kind of like this ambient bed of sounds, but be that as may, you're like, what is this? It revolves down to the minor third. Now you get those two notes, even without giving you the subject, if you will, of the music, tell you a lot about what's going on. It establishes a minor key. Now, here's the thing about a minor key. Those of you who have ever seen Spinal Tap remember the scene where, where guitar player Nigel Tufnell is sitting at a piano, right? He's playing this very kind of like uh, delicate and sad sounding thing. And the documentarian is asking him, oh, that's very beautiful. What is it? And he's like, oh, it's in D minor, the saddest of all keys. <laughs> and he goes on playing a little bit more. Yeah, it's kind of Mozartian thing, you know, I've done. And he's like, oh, what's it called? Lick my love pump. <laughs> <laughs> so minor keys just naturally sound sad. Uh, I would ask you to Google a video that was recently uh, made in which some producer out there remixed Smells Like Teen Spirit. So it's in a major key. And it completely changes the mood of the thing. It sounds like a power pop anthem, right? So minor, you can think of as sad sounding, somewhat scary sounding, whereas major is bright. It evokes these bright feelings. And all the difference between those two things, major and minor, is really two notes. The third note of the scale being either a minor third or a major third, and the sixth of the scale either being a minor sixth or a major sixth. Just that little half step changes the entire feeling of the sound. Now, Tension and release in music is extremely important, and it's 
really important to the feeling of this motif that we hear. This sequence contains a tritone, G flat to C. Isaac noted to me that it's uh, indirect tritone, meaning that there's a note between the two notes that make up the tritone. I should first say a tritone is a interval of three whole tones. And there is a note between those. This is an extremely restless and dissonant interval, which screams, literally screams for resolution. Think the intro to Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. That's a, that's a tritone there. From as early as the 18th century, this interval was known as Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music or the devil notes. And it was frequently avoided in medieval ecclesiastical music, the basis for Western musical traditions. This is because, you know, ecclesiastical music was expressly made for glorifying the goodness and the majesty of God. And here was this note, this extremely discordant interval of notes played together just sounds, it clashes in its really strong way in a way that was actually considered evil and unnatural and an invitation to Satan. It is certainly an ambiguous sound. Gerald Moschel, who's the professor of music at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, told NPR in an interview, Quote, the reason it's unsettling is that it's ambiguous. It wants to go somewhere, this tritone. It wants to settle either here or there. You don't know where it'll go, but it can't stop where it is. I think that's a great way to put it. The tritone needs to resolve. Think of it like saying and and what, what. If I just say and and trail off after saying something, you ha- now you're on the edge of your seat. You want to know what comes next. Anything could come next, but something has to. So... That tritone is part of what creates this feeling of really being unsettled. It's indirect, so it's not totally discordant and clashing. There's a note in between, but it still generates that feeling. Now, tritones are incredibly important to music because their dissonance really requires resolution. They propel music forward toward a point. The best way to think of these resolutions is like the end of a blues structure, that point where you can feel the music go back to the top of the structure, is often built on the tritone. And that is why this piece of music, The Alien, only four notes, but containing a tritone and starting in that really ambiguous way, not on the subject or the root of the scale, but on this minor six, creating this weird ambiguity. What is this music about? That's how it creates this feeling. I'm in awe of you. You create that feeling in me every time we do a podcast together. That was incredible. Mal. Mal. Yeah. Ventress wants you to face it. You want to fight it. But I don't think I want either of those things. I want to watch more movies and read more books like this. So let's head to Area X's Sept to bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of the books and movies that we think Annihilation fans would enjoy. If you like Annihilation, you will like this. I'll go first. Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Alex Garland's directorial debut, which he also wrote and which also stars Oscar Isaac, was a surprise breakout hit in 2014. Oscar Isaac is a total genius dirtbag in this movie. Yeah, also um, our, our boy A.I. Ash. Our boy A.I. Ash <laughs> getting roped in by uh, Alyssa Vikander's robot. It was a very refreshing sci-fi tale for audiences who are looking for something more cerebral. Though the pursuits of his two films are, are different, and though Garland clarified on the big picture that in many ways Annihilation is a reaction to Ex Machina, as each of his projects is a reaction to what came before. They both compel the audience to at once give in to that kind of pure sensation of what they're seeing, but also to go deeper and ask difficult questions about the way they're thinking about the subject matter and what it means to be human. I thought it was fascinating to hear him talk about how each new bit of work he makes is a response to what came before. Number two, 
The Metamorphosis. Oh, I love The Metamorphosis. Read some Kafka, guys. I think for me, pound for pound, among the greatest opening lines in literature. We'll have to do that as a power ranking someday. Yeah, that would re- be a really fun podcast. It's like a really our top great ten one. opening lines. Love that. The 1915 Franz Kafka masterpiece is a novella about a traveling salesman who wakes up one morning to find that he's transformed into a large insect. And it is also about much, much more than that. It is like an essential examination of identity and shame and convention and how we as human beings fear the things that we do not understand. And when he was on The Watch, Jeff Vandermeer said that he often comes at his own work from a Kafka-esque point of view. So that thematic connective tissue is no accident. Love Kafka. Can I tell you what my theory on what the genesis of the metamorphosis is? It's about, on one level, waking up from a wet dream with an erection. I'm dead serious. Just read it. Because he wakes up and he's like on his back and he's monstrous. And his mother is like, (laughs) right? And comes in and he's like, no, don't look at me. He's ashamed of something that's happened. And he's like, what is this? My belly is weird. What's going on? I'm telling you, read it like that and it'll change your whole your whole perspective on a classic of Western literature. To be fair, I think in some way you could view all great works of literature as a euphemism for masturbation. Yes. Certainly every work of Jane Austen. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, number three, Stalker. Andrei Tarkovsky's 1979 art science fiction masterpiece. You can see it on Filmstruck. If you have that such a thing, it's a Criterion Collection staple is about a guide called a stalker who leads a writer and a professor into a heavily quarantined area called The Zone where reality as we know it doesn't exist. And in the heart of The Zone, they say, is a room which contains a person's innermost desires. It is a truly strange and unforgettable film with an ending that will truly haunt you. Really weird and wonderful, strange science fiction movie that I, you can't not think of if you've seen it and then you see Annihilation. How much of it is about masturbation, though? Listen, (laughs) I think a good amount of it. Like, the writer has writer's block. So, you know. Perfect. Kafka did, too. For a long ass time. That's why he wrote this, because he was working on another project and couldn't break through, couldn't reach his literary climax. Here is Kafka, by the way. I love that you brought this up. Here's Kafka on writer's block from his diary. January 20th, 1915, the end of writing. When will it take me up again? (laughs) January 29th, again, tried to write, virtually useless. January 30th, (laughs) the old incapacity interrupted my writing for barely 10 days and already cast out. Once again, prodigious efforts stand before me. You have to dive down, as it were, and sink more rapidly than that which sinks in advance of you. This is like better than his book. February 7th, (laughs) complete standstill, unending torments. March 11th, how time flies. Another 10 days and I have achieved nothing. It doesn't come off a page now and then is successful, but I can't keep it up. The next day, I am powerless. March 13th, lack of appetite. Fear of getting back late in the evening. But above all, the thought that I wrote nothing yesterday, that I keep getting farther and farther from it, and I am in danger of losing everything I have laboriously achieved these past six months. Absolutely incredible. Incredible stuff. I think Garland would have something to say about those self-destructive tendencies. Kafka, my my guy, calm down. You're okay. (sighs) Rub one out and get back to it. Rub one out. Number four. (laughs) Arrival. Ooh. The 2016 Denis Villeneuve film based on the short story, Story of Your Life, which Jason loves. I do love. Teddy Channing's great. Arrival is a film 
really worth seeing for anyone who responded to the something has changed about our world, but I don't know why and think maybe it's actually for the better annihilation crowd. Anybody who found themselves really captivated by just the sheer mystery and the nature of the unknown and also found themselves drawn to the possibility that maybe the thing that seemed to others like an invader could actually in some ways be a savior, that that could actually be a portal instead of a blockade. If you found yourself thinking about Annihilation in that way, definitely check out Arrival. Number five, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the revolutionary 1968 film by Stanley Kubrick based on the novel by Arthur C. Clarke, tells a story spanning, oh, just from the dawn of humanity to the space age itself. A strange shape called the monolith has been found on the moon. It sends a signal to Jupiter and a manned mission is sent to discover what the monolith communicated with. The movie ends with a extended sequence of shapes and colors and weird landscapes and bizarre visuals that has been mystifying viewers for decades. Number six, the tree of life, a.k.a. why that dinosaur in this movie? (laughs) It is hard to ignore that one of the main takeaways of Annihilation seems to be Really liked it, but didn't necessarily understand it among fans or among moviegoers, I should say. Fans might be a bit too charitable. It is a movie in many ways that makes people think and feel in equal measure, but in part because they're so at sea at times during the movie that they can't help but think and think and think and think and think again as they're trying to deconstruct or construct or reconstruct or figure out in any way what they just saw. So if you liked that feeling yes, (laughs) and you want to experience it again, recapture that sensation by checking out Terrence Malick's 2011 opus, The Tree of Life, which is an in turns impenetrable and absolutely transformative love letter to the very nature of existence. If you just want to look at some of the most beautiful imagery captured in film, beautiful. watch any of Malick's movies and, and The Tree of Life in particular. Number seven, The Descent. Literally no. Mal's nightmare. No. Adam, your husband. Monster. Made you the watch true this monster. movie. <laughs> <laughs> Six women on an adventure vacation uh, in the Appalachian Mountains descend uh, into a cave. Things quickly go awry. They argue. Their leader admits that she led them into a cave system that she actually has uh, no idea about and is actually unexplored. There's a cave in that blocks their exit. Recriminations fly. And... What seems like a kind of human drama becomes quite something else as the group presses on into the darkest depths of this cave they encounter. (laughs) I don't like this. Horrible and pale humanoid creatures and the true nightmare begins. Really a one of the great horror movies of the last 15 years. No. And then special consideration <laughs> for The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, one of the constituent stories from the anthology horror film Creepshow, which the script was written by Stephen King, who adapted a bunch of his own short stories for it. It stars Stephen King himself as Jordy, a stereotypical backwoods hillbilly whose property is struck by a strange meteorite, the green glowing space rock contains a fast-growing alien organism that soon overtakes Jordy's body. I should clarify, I don't actually think The Descent is a bad movie. I just am a coward, and I, <laughs> I can't handle true, like, camp horror like that. Yeah. I'm just too delicate. And as a agreement at the beginning of our relationship— This is wonderful. 
said, all right, you know, my now husband, then boyfriend, it's amazing we made it this far, (laughs) loves horror movies. And he's like, I'd like to experience this with you. And I said, I'll give you one a year. One a year is one of your birthday presents. And that was the first one he picked. And we have not returned to this tradition. (laughs) Yeah, it's over. (laughs) And I was so unsettled after I said, you have to promise, please be kind, please be gentle. He's like, I promise to be nice. And then I had moved from the living room to the bedroom. I was getting ready for bed. I was trying to quiet my mind. And all of a sudden I see this like, creepy moving shape kind of like swinging on the ground in the doorway and it was him pretending to be one of the monsters and it was really mean and very scary okay enough about that Jason yeah you're not Jason are you I don't think so I am also not this week's winner every episode we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most and this week we're awarding our champion's purse paid out in southern reach meal packets to This recent movement of cerebral science fiction films. Annihilation is the latest in a string of a particular strain of science fiction film. Intelligent, which is not to say that other ones are not intelligent, but but weirdly, you know, cerebral in a certain way that makes you think. Personal, exploring humanistic and existential motifs and grounded in a realistic style. 2013, Under the Skin, told the story of an alien predator in human form who uses seduction to lure, quote, air quotes, her victims to their doom until she seemingly begins to question the meaning and the humanity of the body she inhabits. Ex Machina, 2014, we discussed above. And 2016's Arrival, we also discussed above, explores the way longing and love transcend time and ponders our need to be understood. Because of their shared themes and similar art house kind of style, these films feel of a piece. They issue action set pieces and clear-cut narratives to tell stories that are at once smaller, smaller budgets, not Mm -hmm. part of an expanded universe IP, but also kind of existentially and internally vast. What's the meaning of life? Is empathy universal? What responsibility does a creator have to their creation? Does time exist? And if not, does that mean that love is timeless? What a beautiful question. I I feel a compulsion since Garland is in many ways one of the faces of this new movement, of this new wave of modern cerebral sci-fi to ask how you felt like in light of the larger pod-to-pod conversation that we always have on this show about Establishing the rules of the universe, how do things work? Do we, as viewers or readers or listeners, understand what's happening and why? How do you feel about the fact that in Annihilation, in many ways, the point was to opt out of that clarity Mm. and that that might be part of this cerebral sci-fi movement where the larger intention is to prompt you to think and sometimes maybe too much specificity can get in the way of that. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it really just case by case? It's case by case. I'm generally okay with it in, in terms of Annihilation. I like the movie. I think it's actually, for as ambiguous and disorienting as it is, it is pretty clear. Everything that happens inside the shimmer is refracted, period. What that creates is chaos, and on a minute-to-minute scale, you have no idea what that means from moment-to-moment for a person's body, for what they're seeing, for what visuals are being translated to the screen. That said, I do think he created the rules pretty clearly. I think what's missing is the motivation. It feels right. as if there's an intelligence behind this thing, but, but we're we don't not know. really sure. Right. Like, what is doppelganger Kane right. trying to do? Is he an agent of chaos? Right. Is he just kind of out there now exploring the world? And one thing we didn't talk about is the nature of the ambiguity at the end and, like, whether it matters if you as a viewer perceived Lena at the end as being original Lena. Right. Original Lena who was transforming because anything that goes into the shimmer transformed. Or if that was actually doppelganger Lena. If you don't have that clarity, 
in some ways, the point is to leave you to figure that out on your own or to ask the questions and to try to parse what any outcome would actually say about the characters and about the nature of the story. Does that in any way detract from the experience? You know, I think we both kind of like when a story leaves you to wonder yeah. when you're exiting the theater or you're putting down a book and you're saying, I have a real reason to keep thinking about yeah. this. This stuck with me. I guess the question is the nature of how it sticks with you. Right. Is that effective and is it what we want? I think it is in this case. I will say that I find that occasionally ambiguity can be a shield for I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. The, the author. This is the author speaking. Like the author not really knowing what to do. Right. Occasionally it is that. And you can occasionally sneak like things by people and get them to be critically acclaimed essentially because people are too scared to be like, I'm not sure what the fuck is going on here. Right. You know what I mean? But not in this case. I like this movie. And I like the book. I don't think Garland has like a firm grasp on his own mythology, but I, I think he would freely admit that. Yeah. I think he would say that that was in some ways his goal. You right. know, the way he refers to the film as feeling like a dream, the way that yes. Vandermeer had a dream actually influenced the book. There's this impressionistic nature to the way that the story is being conveyed. It's alien in a fundamental way. In the way that we don't even know what it wants or what it is, what it's saying, if it's saying anything. If it's sucking little droplets of our blood into itself to sustain and grow. All right, guys. We had rations for only two weeks, but we podcasted for nearly four months. We somehow made it. We hope you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, and Con of Thrones this spring as we are. That you will join us again next Thursday for the latest installment of Binge Mode Weekly. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Make sure you join our Facebook group. Go ahead. Please listen to the Watches Annihilation episode. Listen to the Big Pictures Garland interview. And until we're back next week, remember, we're not destroying. We're making something new. on the virtual online browser keyboard. Lovely. That was great.